1: Hearing the voice, but seeing
0: no one, Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were open, and he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him to, into Damascus. And for three days he was without sight, and neither ate nor drank. Now there was a disciple at Damascus called Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias! And he said, Here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, Rise and go to the street called Straight. And at the house of Judas look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. For behold, he is praying, and he has seen a vision of a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man. How much evil has he done to your saints at Jerusalem? And here he has authority from chief priests to bind all who call your name. But the Lord said to him, And he regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptized, and taking food he was strengthened. For some days he was with the disciples at Damascus, and immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogues, saying, He is the Son of God. And all who heard him were amazed and said, Is not this the man who made havoc in Jerusalem of those who called upon this name? And has he not come here for this purpose, to bring them bound before the chief priests? But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. When many days had passed, the Jews plotted to kill him, but their plot became known to Saul. They were watching the gates day and night in order to kill him, but his disciples took him by night and let him down through an opening in the wall, lowering him in a basket. And he spoke and disputed against the Hellenists. But they were all seeking to kill him. And when the brothers learned this, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up. And walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. This is the word of God for the people of God.
1: All right, good evening. My name is Ben Milner. I'm one of the pastors here again. And um, we're looking at the book of Acts, as you can tell. And um, the book of Acts is a book about the actions, not of the disciples so much as it is about the Lord who has ascended in the very first chapter. Jesus, the resurrected Jesus, didn't just resurrect. People don't realize that not only did he rise from the dead, but then after 40 days, he actually ascended into the invisible realm, the heavens. And from those heavens, uh, he reigns even to this day. And he has never stopped taking ground since he first started in that year, 33 AD. So he still sits on the throne. And uh, we as a church are witnesses to that reign. That's what we are. Um, The kingdom of God is a place where we witness that there is a king. And we witness to the type of king that he is. And in this story, we see more than any other story uh, that he is a king of invincible conquering grace. Um, Could you even think up a story of a more powerful form of grace than to take the greatest persecutor of the church and to make him into the one who is immediately going from synagogue to synagogue, risking his life to proclaim the glories of Christ's grace. This is a big spoiler alert. Okay, so Star Wars, I think... uh, Time has passed, and uh, I actually spoiled this the night the movie came out, so that was really bad. But uh, it's now it's okay to do that. So if you really don't want to know the ending of the Star Wars movies, you can close your ears right now. But um, a great example of this is Kylo Ren. Okay, he is uh, one of the great examples in movies of a man. I see some people closing their ears. Good. Uh, he, is, he is a great example of a man who was uh, mercilessly violently persecuting the Rebel Alliance. He hated it. Um, he he he's the very first scene uh, in The Force Awakens. He's like destroying this village. You know, men, women, and children. So he's the arch enemy. He's the arch enemy of Rey in particular. And uh, and then they're fighting in that scene in, in the third movie. And they're on the old Death Star, like on a parapet, and these huge waves. It's an amazing scene. It's my favorite scene probably in all three of those last movies. And, uh, and she actually ends up killing him. She just stabs him with her lightsaber, and he dies. And, uh, and then she brings him back to life. Uh, she brings him back to life, and he can't believe it. She, she raises him, essentially, from the dead. And then, not only that, he's just shocked by this undeserved love and, and, and uh, incredible grace shown by his, um, the person he's trying to destroy. But then his father, who he, he murdered in the first movie, uh, Han Solo, He comes to him in a dream and he forgives him. He says, you are Ben Solo, my son. And then after this just incredible outpouring of grace, Kylo Ren uh, throws his red lightsaber into this churning ocean. And he says, I am now Ben Solo. And he goes and he is the most passionate warrior for the resistance to the point where he actually saves Rey from the emperor. Uh, So that is, and I'm sure... I mean, there's no doubt that whoever directed that movie or thought of that script is thinking about Paul. This is the great story in, in the history of the world about the persecutor who becomes the sufferer, the lover. And so I want to look at how Saul is a witness to Christ's love, his invincible grace and love, like no one else. And it just always moves me to think of how Paul, Saul, Saul, who later became known as Paul, because that's his Greek name, um, that he would have told Luke, okay, when you write the book of Acts, I want that story in there. And I want it to be, I wanted to show me as, as much, as angry as I was. I want it to be as humiliating as it could possibly be. I want that part about where they lower me through the basket in the city. Because that's incredibly humiliating. So Paul, this was his theme and his song and his story. This, this passage we're looking at. And it's a witness to what he loved more than anything, which is love. Uh, he wrote the greatest chapter on love uh, in the history of the world, 1 Corinthians 13. No one has ever written a greater poem uh, to the glories of love than 1 Corinthians 13. And so he he is a witness to love and not only love, but to the redeeming power of love. So the first part is just how love came at him. The second part of the sermon is going to be how love changed him and redeemed him. So first of all, it's important to think about the persecutor. He was zealous for God. He, he was an amazingly religious man. He was not an atheist. He was not secular. Um, he was motivated every second of his life uh, by the purity of the Torah. He, he thought he was the great defender of Yahweh. He wanted to stamp out this atrocious heresy that claimed that Jesus was Yahweh incarnate because he hated that idea. He, was, he loved Judaism. Uh, In in Philippians 3.5, he said he was a zealous persecutor of the church, a blameless Pharisee. So he kept the law as well as you could keep the law. And stoning Stephen, which he did back in chapter 8, um, he was one of the ones who helped stone him. He laid his cloak at the feet of those who stoned him, gave his approval to that. Might have even led the charge there, but um, Stony and Stephen was not enough for him. Every move he made, every breath he took, it says in verse 1, he was still breathing threats and murder against the disciples. And that's a very vivid image that he's breathing in and out threats and murder. So Stony and Stephen was not enough. He is ruthlessly focused on eliminating what they called the way, the earliest word for Christians, the way, people of the way. Uh, It's kind of like the Terminator going after Sarah Connor. There's just no stopping the Terminator. Anything you could do, you could cut off his arm, his leg, and he's just going to keep going to end the life of Sarah Connor. And Paul is absolutely undeterred from destroying Christ and his people. Verse 2, he he didn't just want to stamp out the way in Jerusalem. He had to go to Damascus, which is quite a ways away. And he asked for letters, in verse 2, to the synagogues of Damascus to bind anyone who belonged to the web. Uh, So he was, I imagine after Damascus, he was going to Shechem, and then maybe Joppa, and all the places where the gospel has spread. uh, He is going to just, you know, snuff out this movement, like, one city at a time. And it says in verse 3... But as he approached Damascus, and again think of an Islamic extremist. Think of somebody just who is is that uh, zealous for their faith um, to the point of violence. But as he approached Damascus, before he had repented, done anything good, um, before he had thought it over again and reconsidered, it just says in verse three, suddenly a light from the heavens shone around him, which is similar to the light that it describes in the Christmas narrative uh, with the shepherds. A light shone around him, and a voice just came out of that light that was so loud that the whole entourage around Paul was silenced by it. And the power of this thing was so great that he was thrown to the ground, and most people think he was on a horse. So he's thrown to the ground by the, the violence of this passion that is breaking out of the unseen realm. You know, which I like to compare to the upside down in Stranger Things, I think it's a great analogy to this other world that's right on the other side of this world, but it's invisible and that that light and that voice come out of that invisible realm and impinge themselves on this realm it's like a hurricane just lifts a roof off a house and he's just lifted up into the air from the other side of the portal and the voice says Saul, verse 3 Saul, why do you persecute me? And there's incredible love in that. There's a reason it's mentioned twice. And I'm sure Paul told Luke. Make sure you put that second Saul in there. Because it's like um, Abraham, Abraham. Or Samuel, Samuel. Or the most poignant of all is when David's son, Absalom, is dead. and, And David says, Absalom, Absalom, my son, my son. And this is Jesus whose son, Saul, he loves so dearly. And he says, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? And then Paul says in verse 5, who are you, Lord? And then Jesus says, "Uh, I am Jesus who you are persecuting. And at that moment, Paul's entire world just collapsed around him. Because the very person that he was trying to kill... Uh, is actually the Lord himself. And the Lord, he thought he was serving, he now realizes that he is murdering, and he's going to bind. And you can imagine that at that point, he's bracing himself for like a lightning bolt to strike uh, because he has uh, committed the ultimate act of blasphemy and treason against the Lord. He's been trying to stamp out this thing that is the hope of the whole world, and he is bracing himself for massive condemnation, wrath, punishment. But instead, what he gets is uh, Ananias' warm hands on his shoulders. You know, Jesus in the flesh. That's what he gets instead of punishment. Uh, I love how the Lord says in verse 12, it switches scenes to this house. And as Paul is having a vision, Ananias is having a vision... Kind of what I said last week with the uh, Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch that God just kind of gives us one little nudge at a time the way He communicates with us doesn't tell us a whole lot He just says Paul go into Damascus Ananias go this house on the uh, straight street and so the Lord says Ananias go and love Saul and Ananias is like well isn't he the guy who is coming here to bind us. And to destroy us. But the Lord says. He doesn't argue with me. He just says go. And like the, this this uncreated power. okay This is the only power in the world. That is not created. It's love. Because God is love. This is an uncreated power. That breaks into the world. And it drives out all of the fear. That Ananias would surely have felt. Or at least it overcomes the fear. Not that he's not fearful still. But in verse 17. It says he departed. And he entered Saul's house, probably very slowly, and like knocked, you know, gingerly on that door as he was shaking. And then he lay his hands, his trembling hands, on Saul's shoulder, and he said, "Brother Saul." Just an amazing thing to say to a man who might have killed friends of his, family of his. Paul thought he would hear condemnation, but he hears brother, brother Saul. And this is actually coming from the Lord, because he said, why are you persecuting me? I am my brothers and sisters. I am so united with them that I consider your persecution of them, persecution of me. And so when Ananias comes to Saul and says, brother Saul, it's the Lord Jesus laying his hands on Saul and saying, brother Saul. This fearless, invincible love of Jesus comes through his people to us. Quick eyed love. Drew me near. As God comes to us through his people, we often wonder where God is, and he's right there. And the Christian next to you, who is his son or daughter, who's loving you, maybe hugging you, or praying for you, that's where he is. I was, uh, I was an atheist in London, walking by the London Zoo, uh, breathing threats and murder. Um, not do anything about it, like Saul, but I was uh, a person who uh, thought Christianity was a joke. I thought it was lame. I was telling the youth group on Wednesday night I was playing the atheist that I used to be, and I said it's, uh, I thought it was lame. I thought it was false and foolish, and I thought it was immoral. Uh, I thought it was bigoted. I thought that it was sexist. I thought that it was uh, imperialist, and uh, I hated it. And as I am walking... By London Zoo in 1991. um, Breathing threats and murder. uh, Isolating myself from a group I was a part of. I can just hear Jesus nudging this Christian that is part of our group. And saying go back there to this lonely man. uh, And who he's stuck in his head. And I want you to trip him from behind. And get his attention. And then I want you to start talking to him. And the hands and the voice of Jesus are constantly sent to you. I mean, more times than you can even imagine. In a day, uh, through text, through emails, over the phone, when you're in trouble, he's sending people all the time to you. You know, when I've had, I've had seizures, heart attacks, my wife had cancer, um, we have been through uh, all sorts of hell in the last few years. And in that whole time, there were times where we thought, where are you, Lord? Why are you not stopping this? You don't seem to care. You know we're dying here, and and there's and you're just not around us anywhere. You know where are you? And in the meantime, there's like a nurse who's a Christian that is like caring for me, or there is a friend uh, that is hugging me as I'm crying, or someone on the phone praying for me as I'm losing it, or the church bringing us meals or whatever it is, and all these things. I was on the couch three days ago just thinking about it, and, and it just hit me um, as I was thinking about this passage. And, and just that phrase, why do you persecute me? Because I am my brothers and my sisters. And I was thinking about the amount of love that God shows me all the time. Not through a blinding light. It's not like that. Uh, not through a voice from the ether, but just these faces of people and these hands. These hands. And these voices. And these prayers. And all of that is the love of God for me. Very specifically tailored through each one of you. So every day. Every act of love. All down the years. That have drawn me to Christ. From 1991 to today. If you just pull back. Like a mosaic of faces. And you pull back from all these faces. And you would see the face of Jesus. And that's true for me. And that's true for you. Whether you're a believer or not. Um, there, Jesus is coming for you through all of these people that are his. And, uh, and the love they show to you is the specific love of Jesus. So that's the first point, that we are loved. And the love of God for this man, Saul, uh, who was breathing uh, threats and murder, was so profound... That it turned that man into the man who wrote this. Love is patient and is kind. It does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable. It is not resentful. All these things that Saul never was. Because of the power of the love of God. He then became the poet of love. The great poet of love. But for love to redeem us, it has to almost kill us first, which you see in this passage. Um, He falls to the ground in verse 4. He is blinded in verse 8. And he becomes so infantilized that he has to be led by the hand of a servant into Damascus. He's like a little tiny infant. And he's so shaken by this experience that it says that he cannot process food. His body is not able to process food. And so for three days, in verse 9, he can't see, and he's neither eating nor drinking. And he probably thought he was going to die. And he might even thought that was the punishment he deserved, to die. To love well, we've got to join Jesus, basically, in his death and resurrection. That's what's going on here. Paul is joining the, the Master in his death and resurrection. But then Ananias comes and he lays his hands on him and he prays for him. And it says in verse 18, he rose and was baptized. And you can just like feel immediately the power that came into him. I mean, it says it uh, several times. Just he increased in strength. Verse 22, they plotted to kill him, but he preached boldly in verse 28. So he's just filled with power as redeeming love fills his vision. And it says in verse 18 that scales fell from his eyes. And he could see perfectly. And what he saw was a world filled with love now. Not a world of threat and danger and heresy and the need to persecute. But a world that is so alive with love that he's willing to suffer anything at this point. Uh, The the theme of the rest of this passage is is his willingness to suffer anything. Because he's so passionate. And, And Christ even says to him... Um, where he says to Ananias to to tell Paul, I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. And that's not a punishment. That is uh, Christ luring in the friendship he's going to have with Saul. In other words, Saul is going to be so close to me that he's going to know about my suffering. He's going to live with me in my suffering. I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. Love always If you love well, you're going to feel pain. Because the people that you love are going to be hurt or they're going to die. And so if you open up your heart to people like Paul did, you're going to feel pain. Uh, Love always breaks us. My favorite band, uh, The Ocean Blue, has a song that's called Love Doesn't Make It Easy on Us. And they say, love does not make it easy on us. It speaks the truth right into our face. It breaks everything in our house. And it blows everything from our mind. Uh, Love is shattering. And it says in verse 20. uh, That immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue. Where he went to bind Christians. And he knows in going in that door. That's not a safe place at all. They probably went in there congratulating him. Because here's the persecutor. And then the longer he spoke. The more they just became furious. And then eventually drove him away. But like Ananias, Saul ignores any danger to give people hope. The people that he loved, the people who are most hostile to him, he ignores any danger to give them hope. And he who created so much suffering is now suffering so much. Jesus says, he will carry my name everywhere. That one. And Ananias is like, how in the world could that person be the one to carry the name of Jesus everywhere? But that's what he was. He was the great apostle to the Gentiles. He took... The name of Jesus, out of Judea, all around the Roman world. Took over the Roman Empire because of Paul. He will carry my name everywhere. Love always drives us to connection. Even across farthest distances, he will take my name everywhere. Connects people. A lot of you love the show Ted Lasso. Uh, I've heard people say that's their favorite show in Discovering Salem. And uh, I've only seen the first season. But towards the end of the spoiler again, Towards the end of that season, um, the owner of this uh, British Premier League soccer team uh, is Rebecca Welton. And she is trying to destroy her team because she hates her husband, her ex-husband, who owned the team. And, uh, and he still wants him to be really good, but she hates him, so she wants to destroy the team. So she goes out and she hires the, the worst possible coach she could ever find, which is like this little football coach in Kansas who doesn't know anything about soccer at all. And she um, she grows to actually love that coach. That's Ted Lasso. And uh, she grows to love him so much that at the end of the season, she has to confess to him what she did to him, to put him in this position. And she comes into his office and she says, "I lied to you. I hired you because I wanted you to fail. I set up an interview with the press to humiliate you. I traded your best player." I sabotaged you as much as I could. And there's a really long pause. As you just see the betrayal setting in uh, on Ted, there's the violation of love. That this woman who he thought really admired him, who thought highly of him, now he realizes she was just always humiliated the whole time with no respect. And he's like, hmm, well, I forgive you. And she says, You what? Why? You do? And he says, uh, pain will make you do crazy things, but if you care about something and you have enough love in your heart, there ain't nothing you can't get through. And I think what's so moving about that scene is that all of a sudden in their relationship is this giant gap that has been created. And you wonder, can the relationship survive that gap? You know, the, the... and, and, and that is where love is, is most explosive. When the gap between Saul and Jesus is the greatest, that's where the love is, is the strongest. It's kind of like with an electrical wire. If you, um, like with those power lines, if you held two of the power lines, you wouldn't be hurt by that at all. Because the voltage is very high on each one of them, but there's no difference. So if you hold two power lines, you're fine. But if you hold one power line and you held the ground, somehow, they were close enough to the ground, then you would, there would be like this explosion of light because the difference is so huge. And it's that difference in voltage that destroys you. And that's where the love of God is so powerful. When there's this huge gap, when there's this difference, when there's a breach, when there's a break, and reconciliation is needed. And that's, that's why I think he chose Paul. Because he chose the one that was farthest away, that hated him the most, that was most opposed to him. And that's why Paul loved to tell his story of redemption. As he went around the Roman Empire, he told it over and over and over again. And we know that because in Jerusalem, you know, midpoint, of this, maybe even towards the end of his ministry, in Jerusalem, when he comes back to Jerusalem and he comes to tell his people again the good news because he loves them so much. And he knows this time it's probably going to be the end. But he comes to them and they're shouting, kill him, kill him. And he just tells the story again. He, he, and then he goes to King Agrippa in Caesarea, you know, maybe a year later. And he does the same thing. He tells him the same story. And I'm sure he said, Luke, when you write the book of Acts, I want that story in there, you know, multiple times. And the story is not, I traveled 7,000 miles. I planted 13 churches. I wrote 28% of the New Testament. That's not the story he tells. The story he tells is, when I hated him the most, when I was breathing out threats and murder, that's when love drew near. Uh, that's when he drew me close. As he says in 1 Timothy 1.16, this is the end of his life, the very end of his life. He says, I received mercy from the Lord for this reason, so that in me... As the very chief of sinners, as the chief of sinners, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience. So at the end of his life, he knew that uh, it was because he was such a traitor, that he was such a blasphemer. Um, That's why God chose him.
0: Love these rascals.